the rest of us, we're going to be taking a look this morning uh, at the Gospel of John in this ancient account of the life of Jesus of Nazareth as he lived on this earth and as he dealt with people in time and place. And as we finished his last interaction with people, we're told that this group of folks had believed in him. They believed in, in what he was saying. They, they bought this idea that Jesus was the light of the world. But the question is, is, is not just would they believe, but would they follow? They liked the idea of Jesus, but were they, did they like it enough to leave behind the life that they had lived before? And so we get to hear this morning as Jesus interacts with these people, as he puts their lives in the spotlight and wonders, what does it mean to believe in the Lord Jesus? Join with me. Uh, you can follow along with me as I read from John chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, but we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me. Because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. And they answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, Well, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your you're doing the works your father did. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, as we come to this text and as we hear hard words, real words, words that, that we're not sure if we should hear them for ourselves or not, or, or maybe we're quite sure that they're words that apply to us. Lord, as we wrestle with what you mean and what you're saying, Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, God, that you would give us the ears to hear, that you would give us the heart to believe and to know of your love and the freedom that you give. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, this was an eventful week of just random uh, building issues around here. And so I had several techs uh, who came by to look at the fire alarm or, or to uh, address uh, uh, this problem or that around the building. And it was interesting because it was reminded of this simple fact that when I left my hometown when I was 18 years old, that I was leaving behind something I never knew that I would be missing, that there was something that I lost in that move when I was 18 that I've never regained since, and that is the loss of a name. The loss of the name. Because you see, every tech that comes in, and, and as they, they fix whatever, and then they, they make me sign, right? A sign that they actually showed up, that they did their thing, that will pay the bill. And they say, what's the, what's the name to put on there? And I, I say, Winkler. And this is guaranteed to get one of three reactions. One is, is like a, almost like a verbal chuckle, like Winkler. What a funny name is that, right? The second, uh, perhaps, thing is Winkler, how do you spell that, right? The third potential option, and this is the one uh, that I got all both times this week, was Winkler. So the Fonz, eh? Henry Winkler played the Fonz for you of even younger than me. I'm too young for that, but I have the last name Winkler, so I have to learn this, right? It's a, it's, it's a joke. It's an obscurity. It's a raised eyebrow. It's a funny thing, but there is a place in this world, right? where the name Winkler means something. There's a place in this world where if I go in and identify myself as a Winkler, it, it, it tells and it ties me to the successes of generations past, right? It's a, it's a name that tells and, and it communicates to the world around me that this is my place, that this is my home, right? It tells a, a story of me. Because it tells a story of those who went before me, right? When I was, if you grew up in a small town, you might have experienced something like this, whether your name was, was good or for ill, right? But when I went to high school and I met all of my teachers for the very first time in ninth grade, not a single time did I have to raise my hand when they called my name to say, oh, that's, that's me, right? Because everyone in that high school knew I was the, the Winkler kid. They didn't know my first name, but they knew my last. They could see me, right? Because they had taught my parents when they were in high school, or they went to high school with my parents, right? Or they lived in the town alongside them. But there was once, I remember uh, being in junior high, and, and my church youth group, we went to uh, visit folks in the, uh, in the nursing home, in long-term care. And, and so I was paired with somebody, and we we entered into this, this uh, older gentleman's room, a man that I had never met before. And as soon as I walked in, I said, uh, hi, uh, my name's Ben, right? And he looked at me, and in, in that one second interaction, he goes, I know who you are. You're Larry's boy. You're Larry's boy. And for the rest of the visit, he told me about how he and my grandfather had done business together for for 40 years, how he, my grandpa, provided and filled the meat uh, counter at his grocery store. He told me of what a good man my grandfather was. He told me of, of his business acumen. He told me that I must surely be a good boy because I was the boy of Larry. 
these folks in this text have a name, and it's a far better name than Winkler. It's a far better name. They carry as a badge of honor what gives them uh, strength in times of weakness, what gives them hope in times of desperation is, is that they bear the name of Israel, that they are, bear the name of, of a name that God himself gave their father Jacob. As he, he says, you are the one who wrestles with God and prevails. You of all the earth are, are, are the royal descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And while you may be destitutely poor, you may be uh, left to the margins of this world, you have this going for you. You belong to Israel. Israel, the son of God. And so if I feel a little bit of an irk, right, when a, when a tech laughs at my name, you can imagine the profound offense when Jesus takes a look at these sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When he takes a look at these people who claim to be the son of God and he says, I know you. I'd recognize you anywhere. You look exactly like your father, the devil. You are the devil's sons. You look like him, you act like him, you do the things that he does. And while they respond, and you can hear them in, in, in anger or frustration in the next text, they'll, they'll, they'll start returning the favors to Jesus, right? They'll call him a Samaritan, and, and they'll say he has a demon, and, 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 and there's all of this argument that ensues because the offense was high, but part of me wonders if a moment came later on, if a moment followed in a, in a more still time when they looked in the mirror and wondered if he was right. If they looked in the mirror and, realized, and wrestled with the idea that maybe their life, the things they do, the way they live in the world, doesn't reflect the devil. If there's something in them that does not match up with what a son of God looks like, but what if what lines up with the son of a murderer or the son of a liar. I don't think Jesus was going after an offense in this passage, but he wanted to shake them awake because there is a problem with those who take their pride in the name of Israel. It's that they trivialize the reality, the severity of what sin was doing in them. And so Jesus exposes the reality of their sin and the picture isn't pretty. So I want us to take a look today at the two realities, two realities that Jesus points out to them and uh, the, the corresponding hope that we can take from it. The first is the realities of sin's dominance in their life. He tells us right here uh, in, in verse 34, right? He says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. That there is something so habitual in the way you act. There is something so regular and automatic. So you've been so conditioned to respond with lies and murder that sin has become almost like an involuntary reflex. Right? He says you are of your father the devil. And your will is to do the father's desires. You've been raised in the household of the devil. And the patterns that he lives out in the world are the patterns that you've learned since you were little. 
They're the patterns. They're the habits. They're the kinds of things that you do even without thinking about them. It's become so compulsory for you to sin because you have been brought, bound, tied into this servitude. The people want to object, but, but that would be a lie. The kind of lie that, that happens so fast that you, you don't even realize you're lying until you hear your voice saying it out loud. Have you ever told a lie like that? Right? You didn't even think before you said it. You just heard yourself saying it out loud, and, you, and something raised in your mind. You said, that's, that's not really true. It's a lie that happens uh, without thought or without concern, without a dis- decision to deceive, but it is so ingrained in your patterns and your habit. Because you've been raised in the devil's household where lies are his character. Gossip, explosions of anger, compulsive lust for wealth and sex, things that if we uh, were to take a snapshot of you in that moment would horrify you and and you would reject them as, as being something that is not of you, but even as you swear them off, you know that you'll be back there again. Somewhere deep down inside while you say never again, you know yourself to be lying in that moment. Because you'll be back. Because the way the devil has raised you has to be is one that returns back to that lie. You know, this week on, on Thursday Night Football, right, the, uh, if you've turned on ESPN in the last several days, you, you know the headline story, right, of this uh, Cleveland Browns player, Miles Garrett, who in, in the midst of a, of a fight on field rips the helmet off of uh, Mason Rudolph on the opposing team. And, and in the fight, he takes the, the football helmet and he brings it down with full force upon the head, the bare head, of, of the opposing player. And it's shock and it's scandal and everyone, all the talking heads on ESPN are going, oh my gosh, we've never seen anything like it. This is horrible and terrible and, and he needs to be done with playing football forever. The, the post-game interview with Miles, and, you, and he can see, you can see him as he sits there, and he says, look, this isn't me. This isn't my character. I made a mistake. It came from nowhere. I don't know how I did it. And in many ways, I believe him, right? I don't think that, that Miles went into that game thinking, I'm going to take a cheap shot at this guy. He didn't go into the fight even probably thinking, I'm going to take this just a little bit too far, right? I'm going to try to actually hurt this person. I believe him if we were able to, to somehow pause that moment on, this, on the, 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 the field and if we were able to stop him mid-swing and if we were able to pull him to the side, right, and be like, now, do you desire to kill this person that you're about to hit? Because that's a real possibility with what you're doing. If we were to, could pause that moment, we would ask him, and he would be like, no, I don't want to do that. But that came from somewhere, right? And I don't know Miles. I don't know his story. I don't know uh, the, the factors that go into that instant, involuntary reflex. But I know the human heart because I know my own. That there are things that we do, there are sins that we commit because sin is a slave master. 
It conditions us, our emotions, our bodies, our wills, in such a way that we think we have no option but to take that next step. And it's always been that way. From the very beginning, from Genesis 4, Jesus, God comes to Cain and he says, Cain, Cain, in your anger over your brother, Rick recognizes that sin is crouching at your door and its desire is for you to dominate you, to rule over you, to replace your will with a bondage to react in the way that the devil reacts, with murder and with lies. It's hardwired, it seems, into our brains and to our emotions. But we keep coming back. It's like that first time you do a sin, you say the lie, you, you, uh, you betray a friend, and you feel awful and terrible and horrible until you do it the second time. And you feel a little bit less and a little bit less. And over and over and over again, it becomes a thing not just that is awful, but a thing that you do. It becomes part of you. But the thing about this sin is not just that it is a, a slavery. It is a, an involuntary servitude that you pay to the devil. It's, it's that it's a voluntary, voluntarily involuntary action. It's a, it's a contract that you enter into with the devil on your own free will and of your own accord. You see, when Jesus says to them, he says, you're right, you are the offspring of Abraham. You're right, you are the heirs of the promises. You're right, you are the people who ought to know and to see and to understand that there is a different way. Jesus says to them, you are the offspring of of evil, so freedom ought to be your birthright. But you left. You went away. Freedom was given to you. Freedom was offered to you from the get-go, but you've sold that birthright for the moments of pleasure or the moment of revenge or the moment of, of fulfilling a need in you that is insatiable. In fact, the fact that you are children of Abraham shows just how complicit you are, just how conditioned and wicked your rebellion is. Freedom ought to be yours, but you've sold yourself into slavery. It's a horrifying thing to look in the mirror and to recognize about yourself. It's a horrifying thing to, to think that that might be true. But I hope as they looked into the mirror that night and as they reflected on their life, which I hope happened, I hope that they remembered that Jesus didn't start off by calling them sons of the devil, right? He didn't start off by saying, your daddy is the devil. He started off by offering them freedom. He started off by offering them hope. So the second thing we see here is the reality, not just of sin's dominance in their life, but of the reality of the son's freedom that he offers them. If you abide in my word, then you truly are my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But if the freedom that Jesus offers is, is to cover such, uh, such a, a, a large and impossible task, how big and how gracious, how consistent must the reality of this freedom be? You know, uh, last year I read 
uh, for the first time, the 12 Years a Slave, the, uh, the autobiography of, of Solomon Northrop, right? This uh, free man who, who was taken and kidnapped and, and bound into slavery in the South for 12 years. And the toils and the efforts and the number of things that had to go precisely right for him to, to earn his freedom, right? To, to escape back to New York, to be brought together again with his family. And it is this beautiful uh, picture of, of this freedom. But the reality of Solomon's life is that he eventually goes missing. And no one knows what happened to him. The reality of Solomon's life is that he was freed from this bondage of slavery. He was freed from this compulsory uh, servitude, but he lived his life perpetually in fear of being taken back. He was freed, but the slave master would eagerly, eagerly grab him and take him back into the bonds of slavery. He lived as a free man. But in a moment's notice, that could all be taken away from him. See, the real freedom is not just to pull a man out of slavery, right? It's also to keep him from going back into it. Real freedom is not just a a one-time action that occurs. Real freedom comes because you are protecting him from being taken back into slavery. And yet, Jesus says in verse 36, So if the Son sets you free, then you will be free indeed. If the Son sets you free, then you will have a real freedom. You'll have a freedom that includes, first, uh, a freedom from the bonds that would threaten to bring you back into slavery. You see, there's a, there's a problem with the way we talk about sin and the way we talk about Jesus. And we, we act as if, uh, you know, uh, this thing happens, right? And Jesus comes and he offers to forgive you of your sin, to wash you white as snow. And that never again is sin even attractive anymore, right? No one here is ever attracted to sin. No one out here is ever uh, tried or, or done to gone back, right? There's a presumption that to not go back to slavery is an easy thing to do. It's something that ought to come naturally to us. But when we look at our lives, and if you have tried to resist sin, uh, whatever flavor is your favorite flavor, you realize that it is far from easy. It's far from easy. And, And so many of us are living lives where we have received and we have called on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been washed with his blood and Jesus has told us and proclaimed to us, you are free. He removes us, he picks us up out of the plantation and he gives us a new home and a new place that's free. And yet we find ourselves longing to go back to the plantation. Sometimes it's like we just wake up in the morning and there we are back in the fields doing the same bondage that we did before. We, we don't even know how we got there. And if you think that not sinning is easy, you will think one of two things. You'll think either I must be a failure. I am so weak and I am so flighty, right? I have screwed up so badly. Or the second thing is you'll think is, well, maybe this is just normal. Maybe this is the pattern of how life ought to be. But the reality is, is that when God comes and when God washes your slate free, he also is promising to lead you towards a path of further freedom. 
He promises to, to take those particular sins in your life. Right, the particular sins that your emotions long for, the, the things that your desire, the sins that your desires long for, the sins that your relationships, your thoughts, your, even your very physical body is inclined towards, those sins. And Jesus has said, I will set you free. The truth will set you free. But the reality of not sinning is, is that in every moment of not sinning, you are taking a, a thing, a hunger, an appetite, a thing that your body and your story and your relationships are disposed to want. And you are saying, I choose to not believe myself, to not believe my emotions, to not believe my desires, to not believe the things in my physical body that are telling me this is true and good and lovely, and instead to believe that there is another life of freedom. Jesus says to them that, my tr that the truth will set you free. Scholars a lot of, well, like to argue about things all the time. Um, but one of them that they like to argue about is what is the truth? What is he talking about? Is he talking about a particular statement that Jesus said, the, a particular idea that Jesus says must be true? Or, or is he talking about truth in a more uh, kind of uh, personalized fashion? Maybe he's referring to himself as a person, that he is the truth, right? That Jesus is the truth that sets him free. But most scholars come down to this and they think, no, by, by truth in this Gospel of John, Jesus is referring to a story that these people listening could only capture a bit of. That the truth that Jesus is referring to is not just what has happened already, but what Jesus was in the middle of doing. That the truth that he is proclaiming to them is the message of the Gospel. That Jesus would be the God who goes to the plantation and pulls slaves from the field and he puts them in a house, but then he gives them a spirit. This is the part that we, we, we forget sometimes, but John never forgets this part. Jesus leaves and he goes away and he says, I am leaving that I could send for you a helper, a helper who is the Holy Spirit, who who was alive and at work in our every moment. A spirit who works to reform our emotional patterns, our physical patterns, our thought patterns. To break and, and to readjust and to recalibrate those things, those emotions that so naturally pull us back into sin. That what God has said is universally true, that you are free, would become more and more of our experiential endeavor. A spirit who, who comes along with you as you stumble back towards the fields of the plantation and he taps you on the shoulder and says, what are you doing? Where are you going? Don't you know that this is the road to death? A spirit uh, who comes alongside you in those moments, those moments of temptation that are, are so profound and so serious. Those moments of temptation that are so powerful in your spirit that you even, the height of illogicalism, but you say, I would turn in my birthright if I could just taste that sin one more time. The spirit comes in those moments, who abides with us, who sits with us, and he tells us truth. 
He's a spirit who as many times as you are found back in the fields going back to your old slave master, as many times as he finds you out there in the fields, he pulls you out and he brings you back. He treats your wounds and reminds you that the grievances that you have just caused have been settled already by the blood of Jesus Christ. He's a spirit who will present you one day body, mind, heart, and soul to the Father. Remade into the very image of God, no longer with the inclinations, no longer with the desires, no longer with the relationships that lead you back into sin, but completely and totally free. Both in the objective reality and in your subjective experience of it. God's desire for your freedom is a glorious gift where he pardons your gift, but his desire for your freedom is something that he actively engages with now. As we come here this morning and as we hear these hard words, as we hear these words of, of folks, as Jesus looks at them and says, you're the son of a devil. And many of us in this room are, are sitting there feeling the weight of that sin, feeling the weight of that claim because we know it's true. We know that our impulses lead us into places that we ought not go. We know that it's true even this very morning. And as we come to this text, as Jesus uh, highlights the reality of our sin, the importance of our sin, the destitute place our sin puts us in, he does it to remind us of how great his salvation is. He tells us how horrible our bondage so that we could be reminded of how great is his freedom. Right? And you here this morning, you here who have been caught back in the fields of lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes or the pride of life, as John would tell folks later on. If you comes to folks who have been sucked back into their servitude and they sit here this morning, you sit here this morning, I sit here this morning with shame. Shame because we know that I've left a heavenly father and gone back like a dog returning to his vomit. That's my story. And if I could just say one more thing to us this morning, it would be don't forget the reality that Jesus knew what he was doing. When Jesus came to these people, Jesus was not confused about the depth of their bondage. Jesus was not confused by how great a work it would take to free them. Jesus was not confused thinking, well, I'll save them once, but then the second time he's out. Jesus, when he comes to them and he proclaims to them that the Son will set you free and you will be free indeed, he meant it. And he meant it knowing exactly what you have done. Knowing exactly what you are about to do. He means it. That when he comes to die on the cross, he comes not surprised at how awful you are. But he comes because he knows how great your bondage and how egregious your sin. And it is that Jesus. The Jesus who knows the ugliest and the darkest, who knows your ingratitude, who knows your tendency to lie and to murder. It is that Jesus who promises to you that his truth, that his spirit can set you free and you 
will be free indeed. Pray with me. Father, we come this morning, and Lord, we confess that oftentimes our sin is just the, the beating drum of our life. For some of us, it seems so routine and normal that we forget of how egregious it is. Others of us come, and we come with the bondage and the weight of feeling like we are failures, that we can't measure up, that we have no place in your family because the bondage of sin weighs on us so heavenly. But to both of us here this morning, Lord, we come to you because you are the only one who can give freedom. You are the only one who can set captives free, and you are the only one who can keep captives free. Lord Jesus, that is the freedom we long for. That is the freedom we need. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.